With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to a second Advisory Opinions podcast of the week, uh, operating under the principle of you got to give the people what they want. The people want a second podcast in the week. And so here we are. And it's a particularly timely podcast because for those of you who care about the law, who care about the powers of the presidency, who care about campaigns, what a week it's been. But before we dive into our three main topics today, which are going to be Roger Stone, the dark arts of opposition research, and the Netflix series Cheer. I bet you didn't see that one coming. I'm going to remind you again that the paywall is coming. So last week or earlier this week, Sarah did not like my uh, comparison of calling it like an iron curtain descending across the internet. Um, How about like the black gate of Mordor slamming shut? Oh, God. The paywall is coming. I thought like you were going to go with winter is coming. That I'm down with. <laughs> uh, no, I actually went and I uh, and I went and I reminded myself of what was the name of the Black Gate of Mordor. Do you do you remember what it is in Sindarin, the Elven language? You're joking, right? Uh, I I would not joke about such things. It yeah, is definitely not. A thousand <laughs> times, don't. <laughs> it is Moranin. Moranin <gasps> is the name of the Black Gate of Mordor. So anyway, that's a, uh, a long way of saying the paywall is coming at The Dispatch. So we would love it if you would subscribe, thedispatch.com. We would also love it if you subscribe to this uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And also we'd love it if you rate us. Your feedback has been very, very helpful. Um, so time to dive in. Uh, we've got a couple of emerging legal issues uh, surrounding Roger Stone. And Sarah, this is an interesting one. It has, uh, it has, the president tweeted this morning uh, that one of the jurors, in fact, the jury, jury four person, appears to have been, in his view, biased against him. Uh, her name is Tamika Hart. Uh, she outed herself on a Facebook post defending the four prosecutors who withdrew from the case, one of whom uh, resigned entirely from the DOJ. And then that caused people to do, of course, start combing through her social media. And they found out that she's a Democrat. She's a former Democratic congressional candidate. She's a donor to Democratic campaigns and has tweeted a few times against Donald Trump and tweeted about the Mueller investigation. Uh, And so scandal? Does that seem like a scandal? (laughs) Your first blush and then I'll, I'll follow up. So I saw this percolating on conservative Twitter yesterday afternoon a bit uh, because they, you know, were trying to find some way to, you know, wade into the Roger Stone mess um, and defend the president on this. And my first thought was, uh, that's a defense attorney's job. 
That's why you hire a good defense attorney. <laughs> Not even a good one, a mediocre defense attorney, uh, because this is the voir dire process, or as we say in Texas, voir dire. <laughs> well, that's right. And now th- what's interesting to me is, so here's the claim that this person snuck. Essentially, the claim is this person snuck onto the jury. Um, but I've been doing a lot of due diligence today, and I've gone back and I've read a lot of documents. Um, and I've read a couple of documents. One was a uh, the court decision by the trial court in the case, trial judge in the case, denying a motion for a new trial on the basis of bias of a different juror. And what I found when I was reading through that, it found that the trial court struck a total of 40 prospective jurors for cause. So in other words, Roger Stone's defense attorneys were at least reasonably diligent in trying to strike jurors for cause. So then that got to be my next question. My next question is, did they try to strike this juror and what did they know about her when uh, during, can I say it like you say it, voir dire? I, <laughs> that was perfect. Um, I also, though, would, uh, it's worth noting, D.C. is a 90-plus Democratic district. Uh, the District of Columbia is highly, highly Democratic voters. So most, not just most, the overwhelming majority of potential jurors will be registered Democrats. Even Republicans in D.C. are registered Democrats usually because it is the only way to influence the general election because that's the primary election here. In I, I'm very glad you brought that up because that's a, absolutely a material fact here that re- brings so us. For, yeah. So being a registered Democrat is not going to be something you could really strike for cause here. Correct. But some of the other things you said were maybe more borderline. Yeah, correct. So a Republican does not have a constitutional right to be tried only uh, to have a jury comprised of independents and Republicans. And Democrats don't have a constitutional right to have a jury consisting only of independents and Democrats. I mean, I've tried a very contentious. The last trial I was I, I tried in my career was a very contentious political case where uh, the jury my best guess is it was majority partisan Democrat, and my client was a very outspoken uh, conservative columnist. So this is just life. Uh, you you try your case in front of people who have different political views from you all of the time. But here's the legal standard. So if Wardar is is ineffective or is insufficient, sometimes you can get a new trial. And the Supreme Court, unsurprisingly, has opined about this. And it's held, and I'm going to read a quote from a case called McDonough Power Equipment versus Greenwood from all the way back in 1984, back in the days when I was a dungeon master. Uh, <laughs> it says, we hold that to obtain a new trial in such a situation where there's an allegation of dishonesty and a voir dire, a party must first demonstrate that a juror failed to answer honestly a material question on voir dire and then further show that a correct response would have provided a valid basis for a challenge for cause. And so, in other words, it's not just that there was something wrong or inaccurate about the voir dire. It had to be inaccurate in a particular way, provided a valid basis for challenge for cause. This is is similar to other parts of criminal law where not only does there have to be a harm, but the harm has to be material to the outcome. Correct. You're not, as courts have said in, in reviewing trial transcripts, uh, since time immemorial, a trial is not required to be perfect. Yeah, it's with and, and most of them are not. <laughs> All of them are not. Um, so, 
and and also uh, striking jurors for cause is a matter committed to the trial court's discretion. So it's a pretty high bar uh, to overturn that. So fortunately, there's actually a transcript of the oral voir dire in this case of the juror. And, and did anyone on this podcast go and find it, David? I did. <laughs> I went I'm and so I'm so pleased to hear that. I went and I found it. And the juror is identified as juror 1261 in the transcript. We we feel pretty confident it's Tamika Hart because remember that Tamika Hart ran for Congress? Yeah. Well, guess what this juror says? Here's a question. I ran for Congress. Here's a, here's a question uh, from opposing counsel. Did you ever work for anyone in Congress? Prospective juror, no. You've worked on campaigns for Congress, people running for Congress? Juror, I ran for Congress. There we go. Question, you ran for Congress? I worked on my own campaign. Do you have any political aspirations now? I don't know, not federal. What might they be? My home state in Tennessee, no local. Uh, Then he follows up and he says, the fact that you run for an office, you're affiliated with a political party. Roger Stone is affiliated with the Republican Party, Donald Trump. You understand what I'm saying and getting at? So we're kind of specific, aren't we here? Um, I do. How do you feel about that? Here's the prosecution objects. Because why would the prosecution object? Because you can't have a political, flat out political litmus test. Litmus test. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So here, here's the court. Can you make that question a little more crisp? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Don't you love judges? Is there anything about his affiliation with the Trump campaign and the Republican Party, his being Roger Stone in general, that gives you any reason to pause or hesitate or think you couldn't fairly evaluate the evidence against him? This is a way of saying, are you politically biased? Prospective juror, no. Okay. Now, I do think um, uh, it's worth underlining the phrasing of that last question because it is the standard for all jurors. Everyone has biases. Everyone has things that cause them one way or the other, especially with famous uh, defendants, OJ or otherwise. And the question is, uh, can you evaluate the facts and the law impartially and set aside whatever these things are about yourself. And if a juror says yes to that, uh, normally a judge will believe them. Correct. Correct. And actually, the judge, um, prior to the questioning by defense counsel, asked questions because apparently in the written questionnaire, there was a written voir dire questionnaire. I keep being tempted to constantly say voir dire, but in the written- It's fun. Try it at home. The written voir dire. Um, the court, here's the court. You've also indicated a fair amount of paying attention in news and social media, including about political things. Yes. And when we asked what you read or heard about the defendant, you do understand that he was involved in Mr. Trump's campaign in some way. Yes. Then here's the question. Is there anything about that that affects your ability to judge him fairly and impartially? Absolutely not. So then she asked, what have you heard about Stone? Nothing I can recall specifically. I do watch sometimes paying attention, but sometimes in the background CNN. So I recall hearing about him being part of the campaign and some belief or reporting around interaction with the Russian probe and interaction with him and people in the country. But I don't have a whole lot of details. I don't pay that close attention or watch C-SPAN. Then she says, can you wipe that slate clean and learn only what you need to learn in this case from the evidence presented in the courtroom and no other source? Prospective juror, yes. 
Now, I don't want to get ahead of where I think you're you're going, David, but um, uh, there is going to be a difference here between striking someone for cause. Correct. For instance, if she had said, no, I think Roger Stone is a POS and, uh, you know, that he is Russian and is part of some drug trafficking ring, uh, then you can strike her for cause. But she could say all the right answers to these things, right. but still be someone who you do not believe is telling the truth or someone who seems too eager to get on this jury. And the defense counsel has another option. Correct. The peremptory challenge. And in federal non-capital cases, a defense gets 10. So you can strike 10 just because you don't like the way their hair looks. Now, that's literally one of the cases is based like one of the test cases on peremptory challenges was based on hair, actually. So that's funny I, you said that. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, Whether hair was a stand in for race. Oh, fascinating. OK, because you cannot strike for race, but you can right. strike for almost any other reason. And so you have. And certainly if you do not believe someone when they say they can be impartial. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's well established. So anyway, now I have read to you the the core substance of the claims against uh, uh, core substance of the Q&A. So here's here's my question for you. You're Roger Stone's defense lawyer. The court is now going to ask you a question. Miss Isger, do you have a motion? <laughs> and in this case, I'm guessing they did not. They did not. Yeah, they did not make. Now, what we're putting this in a vacuum of just this one um, jury, both her, her written questionnaire and her oral back and forth. Uh, if I'm the defense and I know I've only got 10 of these, there could be other jurors, for instance, who were far more uh, egregious, less believable when they said they could be impartial. So I can't strike them for cause, but I know I'm going to have to use one of my peremptories on, you know, someone who changed their middle name to I hate Roger Stone, but says they can be impartial, <laughs> has a tattoo, you know, of Hillary Clinton on their forehead and is like, no, no, I can totally judge this fairly. Right. Uh, so, you know, we can blame the defense counsel for not using one of their peremptories, but presumably they did use all 10. Do you know that? I don't know, you know that. Whether? I don't know yeah. that. I didn't go through all of the. Tra- I can't imagine that they didn't. I can't honestly. imagine because they did get 40 struck for cause. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't sleeping. They were which not. Which also happens in trials. They were. It does happen sometimes. They were not asleep. And what's interesting, so, um, you know, a, a good diligent podcaster will go on and read further in the transcript to see how they responded to other jurors and what were some of the other bases that they used for cause to. Ooh. So, what I, would that good podcaster have found? Yes. Well, this this podcaster found that. For example, they would move to strike jurors who indicated who who had a, pa- a, a a background or a past or were affiliated with the Democratic Party or supported Democrats who promised to be impartial but would strike on the basis that they paused for too long or their demeanor was in was inappropriate in responding to the question. And guess what? The judge granted. Striking for cause. Striking for cause. If the demeanor. So not one of their 10. Yeah. Not yeah. one of their peremptory. If their demeanor was off. So it wasn't hmm. just for cause when they said, yeah, Roger Stone is worst. I can't wait to send him up the river. There was subjective reasons. Uh, and so they. <laughs> like, can you be impartial? 
yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that will show up in the transcript as, yeah. But True. in the courtroom, you'd be like, yeah, that's not, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. And court reporters don't put in things like long pause, apparent soul. <laughs> looked, yeah, look to the side. <laughs> <laughs> apparent soul <laughs> searching in process. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now here is the case that she was, the best case we now know that she was misleading in the answers that I've told you. So she has a Twitter account, and in that Twitter account, she has tweeted more than 13,000 times. Uh, Okay, maybe on the high end, but not unheard of. A little bit on the high end. So there are about six tweets in the 13,000 where she tweets um, retweeting articles about the Mueller investigation. Most of them are- When? What's the timeline 2017. So pre-trial. Yeah, two years pre-trial. Okay. More than two years pre-trial, and at least one tweet indicating that she did watch that she had watched C-SPAN. Um, <laughs> okay, C-SPAN, got it. Yeah. So <laughs> my assertion, and, and uh, I want to hear what Judge Isger thinks, <laughs> is that short of more than that, that is thin gruel, uh, especially compared to saying that she ran for freaking Congress. And had admitted to paying attention to the news closely and knew who Roger Stone was. That's thin gruel to say that there was a material omission. What say you, Judge Isger? Well, I think we also should back up a second. I'm not totally clear why anyone is relitigating the trial at this point and the guilt and innocence, because that's actually not what the news is about this week, which is about his sentence. (laughs) Whether seven to nine years is a reasonable sentence for what he was convicted of is a very different question than whether a single juror on the jury uh, would have, you know, if we had switched her out for someone else, would have also voted to convict as every other juror on that jury must have done because it had to be a unanimous verdict. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to I'm going to interpret that response as motion denied. (laughs) Uh, There's a reason that we don't relitigate all of these small decisions as being um, ineffective assistance of counsel. There's no question that he had effective counsel. Counsels can have different trial strategies. They can certainly have different thoughts and feelings about who's a, a good juror, a bad juror, et cetera. It'd be one thing if there was a fight raised in the transcript about striking her for cause and they lost that fight. Right. Even then, uh, my sympathies would be quite limited. But the fact that whatever their strategy was did not include striking her for cause makes us reviewing this, or anyone else for that matter, a very silly exercise. (laughs) Silly, though fascinating. (laughs) David, you can find, you are able to make anything fascinating and I... I, I've enjoyed it, the conversation, <laughs> but I do think it's just worth the big picture look at, you know, this is one out of 12, 11 other people found him guilty. She wasn't even, they didn't even attempt to strike her for cause. They didn't use one of their peremptories. There were many options they had here. I don't, do you know how cranberries are harvested? Um, I've forgotten. <laughs> so there's that basically you put the cranberries down the chute and there's little slats in the chute and the cranberry has to bounce out of the chute by hitting one of the slats. But it's not that it only has one chance to hit a slat and bounce. It has several chances down the chute to hit a slat and bounce out. <laughs> and I use this a lot in life. Like, you had several slats to hit and bounce. 
and you just didn't. Right. So you're a bad cranberry. Like, you're out. <laughs> you're not going into my cranberry sauce, and you're not making it on the Thanksgiving table. I like it. I like it. No, I had no idea about how cranberries were harvested. And I would imagine maybe uh, 10 or 20% of our listeners didn't either. So... Oh, I bet I'm going to get lots of corrections on this. Of like, well, Sarah, the slats are actually made of, and I appreciate them, and please send them. I will find it fun. Now we talked a lot about on the Dispatch podcast, which you should, the flagship podcast, which you should listen to uh, if and subscribe to if you don't already. We talked a lot about the um, real scandal or the real question that at first exercised the president because this latest juror issue exercised the president pretty vigorously this morning. But the latest was the prosecutors who were recommending seven to nine years in prison for Roger Stone. I don't think we need to repeat that whole thing, but I think that let's just make this super simple and and we'll get Judge Isger back on the bench. Um, So Judge Isger, is it unreasonable for the prosecutors to ask for a significant enhancement of the sentence on the basis that not only was Roger Stone found guilty of lying to Congress and and attempted witness tampering, but he appears to have physically threatened a witness, uh, the the liberal comedian Randy Credico. And here's the key quote. I'm going to read it to you with a bleep. So he emails Randy Credico and he says, you are a rat. At what point? When does he send the email? April 9th, 2018. So this is in the middle of the Mueller investigation. The question is, is Credico, you know, is Credico going to be testifying in the course of this investigation, testifying to Congress or providing testimony? I can't remember if it's Congress or Mueller, but what's he going to say about Roger Stone's efforts to reach out to WikiLeaks? Right. And it looks as if Credico is going to spill the good. He's going to He's going to sing. He's going to be sing like a canary. And so here is what Roger Stone says. You are a rat, a stoolie. You backstab your friends, run your mouth. My lawyers are dying to rip you to shreds. Stone then says, I will take that dog away from you, referring to his dog, a therapy dog named Bianca. Bianca. Yes. And by the way, listeners, if you do have your phone handy, just go ahead and Google Bianca, the therapy dog. Um, it, you won't be disappointed. It's a cute dog. It's a very it's, cute dog. It's an, abs- it's an absurd dog. To call it a dog is, you know, it's insulting to some dogs. It's a cute small dog. Now, we have a very <laughs> large dog named Boo who could eat Bianca and with one gulp. And still be hungry. And, and yes, but he's a very nice dog. He wouldn't do that. He says, I'm going to take that dog away from you. And then he also wrote on or about the same day, I am so ready. Let's get it on. Prepare to die. And then I won't use the expletive. Um, And wait, there's something else important about this, David, which is Randy Credico was asked about this. Yes, that's the next thing. Okay, please, please. So in court, Randy Credico says, I did not take that literally. He didn't take it seriously that that um, Stone was literally going to hurt his dog, take his dog or kill him. So that's a very important fact. It is an important fact because what the prosecutors did in their sentencing enhancement, and there were other enhancements, but this is the eight-point enhancement that's the largest one, um, they only took the threats seriously. They did not take Randy Credico disavowing the seriousness with which he took the threat seriously. Uh, And so he gets the full enhancement for threatening um, a federal witness. Right. 
I think that most people who would review Roger Stone's case, most, you know, walk on the street, tell them about it, think that seven to nine years would be a very long time. Right. But here's a very relevant fact to all of this. While the Department of Justice sentencing memo is a delightful read, good times, (laughs) uh, the Department of Justice does not get to decide how long Roger Stone goes to jail. Judge Amy Jackson Berman decides that. Amy Berman Jackson. Did I just flip that? <laughs> um, well, if you either way you said it, one of them is correct. One of them is correct. Um, so the point being that we're arguing a lot about how DOJ calculated the sentence, what they put in their sentencing memo the first time, the second time, and we can go around and around about that. But at the end of the day, a judge will decide his sentence. I find it... Uh, even if they had kept with the seven to nine year recommendation, I do not think she would have given him seven to nine years. Uh, I think three to four is more likely regardless. And I don't think that their departure away from that sentencing recommendation will have a great effect on it either. Right. Here's So it actually goes more to the credibility of the Department of Justice and of the president's influence over the department. That remains a very valid concern. It is not that interesting as to how much time Roger Stone will actually spend in jail. <laughs> See, Sarah, you keep pulling me away from the minutia. <laughs> but you know what? You you go into that minutia. I love it. <laughs> well, this is how I ended that portion. I, I dealt with this in my newsletter, and, and this is how I ended that portion. It's worth noting prosecutors do not decide the sentence. Stone's lawyers have the opportunity to contest the sentencing recommendation, and the judge makes the ultimate decision. Trump was angry at a potential injustice, not an actual injustice, and his Twitter explosion created the impression that he was treating Stone to a friends and family criminal discount. And look, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, I have Googled that, uh, (laughs) There are other things in this trial that uh, have been bad for Roger Stone. There was a gag order on him that he violated, and the way in which he violated was to put a picture of the judge with crosshairs over her face uh, on his, I believe, Instagram feed. So that's not like the most endearing thing I've heard a defendant do (laughs) for a judge. Only maybe the third or fourth most most endearing. Right? Uh, (laughs) So... Uh, but that doesn't make this conversation about the sentencing memo irrelevant by any stretch. Correct. It it just makes it, to me, irrelevant to Roger Stone's sentence, which, frankly, I don't care that much about anyway. Ooh, I'm going to get angry emails. <laughs> so let me let's wrap up our legal discussion with one last one, okay? And we'll, yeah. one last. We'll just dip, we'll just dip our toes into the minutia. Okay. Okay. Love it. And this is Alexander Vendman. Um, mm. Part of this is very legally clear, and that is that Trump absolutely can fire him from being a National Security Council aide. That. And wait, I wait. I just have one quick thing on this because it's similar to the slight temper tantrum I threw yesterday about saying that the four AUSAs had resigned. Yeah. When only one of them had left their job with the Department of Justice. The other three had simply left the case. Um, He was not fired from government service. He was removed from his position on the National Security Council. And now his duty station is to report to the Pentagon. Right. Exactly. So 
He is, there, there's some minutia for you. Ha. No, that's good. That's excellent. I, I love it. Um, I can marinate in minutia. <laughs> so he was removed from the National Security Council, but he's not been fired from the military. He's not been relieved of his rank. He has not faced military punishment. And Trump, in a, which is Trump's prerogative, he can do that. Now, I also happen to believe that sort of perp walking him out was excessive, tweeting vicious insults at him, again, excessive. But then here's one where I felt like it pricked my legal antenna. So Trump says, said that, suggested that Vindman should face military discipline. And, and here's the quote from Trump. We sent him on his way to a much different location and the military can handle him any way they want. Asked if he was suggestion that Vindman place, face disciplinary action, Trump said that would be up to the military. If you look at what happened, they're going to certainly, I would imagine, take a look at that. Now, there's this interesting, now he's skating here. He, he's got some caveat language, but that they're going to certainly take a look. There were certainly, I would imagine, take a look is very interesting because federal law, a statute, an actual statute, passed by Congress, passed by Congress prohibits military commanders from engaging in something called unlawful command influence. And here, here's the actual words. No person subject to this chapter may attempt to coerce or by any unauthorized means influence the actions of a court-martial or any other military tribunal or many, any member thereof in reaching the findings or sentence in any case or the action of any convening, approving, or reviewing authority with respect to his judicial acts. Cutting through sort of the military legalese, a commander at a certain level is a convening authority of a court-martial. In other words, they... Uh, or an approving authority or a reviewing authority. So that's a action directed at military commanders. So, for example, if I was when I was in Iraq, it would have been considered unlawful command influence. If the regimental commander told a squadron commander, which is beneath the regimental commander, I want you to execute an Article 15, which is a non-judicial punishment aspect of military justice, on private snuffy, for accidental discharges of his M4. Uh, he could set a general policy that says all accidental discharges will result in non-judicial punishment, but he cannot dive in and say, you must do this kind of punishment for this kind of, uh, for this soldier. And interestingly enough, uh, Trump has been accused of unlawful command influence before. Uh, he basically called for the head of Bo Bergdahl. Your, yep. And and the Military yep. Court of Appeals found two to one that that did not constitute unlawful command influence, not because the president couldn't do that, not because the president couldn't be guilty of unlawful command influence, but because they didn't find sufficient evidence that 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 the president's statements about Bergdahl had an impact on the case. Now, I, I do remember this and I remember that outcome. I do not remember, though, in the opinion, whether they find that he can't uh, have or rather, <laughs> whether they are able to reach that question or because they found that he did not have influence, therefore they don't need to reach the question of whether he uh, could have That's a good distinction. Influence. That's a good distinction. I don't recall the answer to that off the top of my head. There is usually in uh, courts a thing called avoidance doctrine yes. where you try to decide the smaller issue before deciding the larger issue. 
Uh, most of the time, it's called constitutional avoidance. You try to decide it on the facts before you decide whether uh, something is unconstitutional, for instance, because that's such a large thing to decide. And in this case, to decide whether the president can have uh, unlawful command influence would basically be to decide whether Congress has the authority to limit his command of the armed forces. This goes back to a discussion you and I have we've trotted around the pond on a few times, which is the unitary executive theory and just how far that theory can stretch. Yeah, and it raises an interesting question because the UCI, that's the, I'm going to lapse into my military uh, acronym speak for a minute. Everything's an acronym in the military. Uh, But UCI unquestionably applies to the subordinate, to Trump's subordinate commanders. Yes. So the, the question would be, if I'm if I'm TDS Trial Defense Service, uh, which is not Trump Derangement Syndrome, <laughs> TDS <laughs> the other TDS Trial Defense Service. Uh, if I am TDS and I'm going to make and and I see a senior commander in in uniform responding to a Trump directive by himself making a directive to launch an investigation and initiate punishment, I'm actually going to bring my UCI claim against that commander. And, Correct. And there's no question that that will apply. And he can't say the president ordered me to violate the UCMJ and therefore I'm going to violate the UCMJ. That will not help him in that circumstance. Uh, that would be deemed to be an unlawful order, that he received an unlawful order. Mm, OK. Uh, I, uh, to a point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So th- this is where I think the the unitary ex- now the unitary executive position I think would be well, uh, no, that's a lawful order because the president ultimately is an absolute authority here in this congressional statute un- inappropriately right. limits. But right, the statute itself is unconstitutional because it uh, intrudes on the prerogatives of Article Two powers. But holy smokes, I cannot see the Supreme Court of the United States ruling the UCMJ unconstitutional or a material aspect of the UCMJ unconstitutional. <laughs> whoa. Uh, <laughs> whoa. Whoa. That would mean the- As Keanu Reeves would say. D- dude. <laughs> it would be like, dude, are you telling me the president has absolute authority to commit war crimes? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, I don't think so. But we'll, we'll table that for another time. Okay. But, uh, enough minutia. Um, have we covered all this? Yeah, let's let's go to dark arts. Yes, well, you know, completely changing gears, uh, and mo- only kind of, and moving into <laughs> a the political world. Uh, well, a different aspect of it. Uh, there was an unbelievable oppo hit dumped on Mike Bloomberg this week as he surged in the polls. Uh, reg- yeah, several. several, several. I mean, just I, to quote aliens, he was nuked from orbit. I have some of the headlines here. Can I oh, read them Oh, please. To you? The notorious Michael R. Bloomberg uh, subheadline: His racist stop and frisk policy as New York mayor can't be forgotten. From the New York Times, uh, Bloomberg once blamed end of redlining for 2008 collapse. From the AP, this is referring to uh, landlords and homeowners refusing to rent to someone because of race or some other prohibited uh, thing that that caused when they got rid of redlining. So therefore, you had to uh, do that, like let these people buy houses who you had been 
unlawfully prevented right. from buying houses, that that caused the 2008 economic collapse. Uh, here's another one. Mike Bloomberg in newly surfaced 2015 remarks compares Putin's attacks on Ukraine to U.S. annexing of California. Quote, what would America do if we had a continuous country? I think he <laughs> contiguous. Uh, <laughs> uh and a lot of people in that country wanted to be Americans. Does California ring a bell? We just went and took it. Oh, my. And then Michael Bloomberg quietly rejoined clubs that largely exclude women, comma, minorities. So I have this vision in my mind. Yeah. Of let's just forget aliens because they didn't actually nuke it from orbit, which was a, a problem. They should have done it. But then it had been a shorter movie. Um I am picturing Star Wars and when the Death Star fires on Alderaan and you just see all these guys in masks and that, you know, you hear that laser powering up. And <laughs> and fortunately here, we have in on this podcast a gunner on the Death Star. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> a professor of the dark arts of oppo research. And I thought we thought it would be fun to lift the curtain here a little bit yeah. and talk about how does this happen? So, first of all, let's break it up into its component parts. In a large campaign operation, there is a research department. There is a communications department. And there is normally a rapid response director with maybe one or two staffers as well. They are all sort of under the umbrella of uh, either the communications director or a deputy campaign manager who, who puts it under an umbrella. And they work all together to create, to maneuver the Death Star, if you will. So I, I do think that's relevant because most people only hear about the comms department because they're the forward-facing one. Right. But the research department is charged with putting together the book, quote unquote, mm -hmm. on both the candidate that you work for and all of the opponents. Uh, that book gets handed off to the comms department, who then is putting a strategic plan together of how to sell those hits, when to sell those hits, et cetera. Separately, the rapid response director um, is sort of living in the news cycle. So if you see Ukraine in the news, you flip through the book and see that Michael Bloomberg has a Ukraine thing. Get that out there right now. Sell it now. Uh, maybe Amy Klobuchar does too. Great. Sell that. Um, and so you're selling sort of cheaper hits, let's call okay. it, quicker ones. And the communications department selling bigger ones. They may be working on the ad about it, um, you know, where that dark voice goes, Michael Bloomberg rejoined a club that excludes women. That doesn't sound like a very dark voice. <laughs> Sorry. How about Michael Sorry. Bloomberg <laughs> excluding women? Better. Better, yeah. much better. Okay. Uh, so, okay, so let's dive into the research department okay. and how they're putting together the book. I think because of Hollywood and some good movies that I've enjoyed, there's a misperception on what the life of a researcher is like, that like they're following Gary Hart around and just waiting for him to, to get on that boat. What was um, the boat's name is awesome. Um, Monkey Business. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dear candidates, if you're getting on a boat named Monkey Business with women not your wife, this isn't going to end well for your presidential <laughs> campaign. Well, at least uh, in but... 1984. I, now all bets are off. <laughs> so 
that would be a really uninteresting thing to a researcher because uh, it's very factually hard to prove. The citation would be weak for it. It would be like, well, I saw him. There's just not enough people doing this where you can send them out with cameras. A researcher's job is to sit there and get documents. Um, it's like very in-depth Google monkeys. Gotcha. But they may go out to a courthouse to look at deeds. I have been to plenty of uh, property properties looking at uh, whether they actually are the thing they said they are. If a candidate, you know, owns a business and the business owns a lot of properties in like sort of odd places or, you know, I'm not quite sure what those are. Then I get in the car and I go drive by those. Fine. Let's make sure they're not um, slum right. lord type stuff that's renting out or uh, I don't know, just. Who knows what you could find? 99% of everything I did was a dead end. But all it takes is one. Yes, right. <laughs> so you're so you're looking for that one, and you've got to be the type of person and the type of personality uh, who enjoys that. Think of like a bomb-sniffing dog uh, who, you know, is rarely ever going to find the bomb. But man, when they do, <laughs> they're pumped. So you're amassing so, – so you're sitting there, you're amassing a, – a, a large amount of information. And so that's the input. And then you're then you have a decision, when do we unleash? And you're not necessarily unleashing it every single time as you get it. You might be you're you're rarely so. rarely. rarely. So you're storing it up and you're deciding when you're going to unleash it. Yeah, and I think another misperception is this idea that um you save it for the quote October surprise. Right. That would almost always be malpractice. Mm. Now, there's like reasons now what it would be extra malpractice, which is early voting. But okay, fine. I actually mean it would be malpractice to wait for a September surprise. Like just to do it just pre-early voting is a mistake. Right. Because we have such ubiquitous media, high partisanship, you want to help define your opponent's narrative, who voters think they are. Once that narrative has been set, the level of nuclear weapon you would need to dislodge that narrative is just so much higher come September than it is right now. So as Michael Bloomberg is picking up steam, you want to define him now. Right. Uh, and that's what we're seeing happening. Now, because he got into the race late, they probably were putting the book together quite late compared to some of the other uh, opponents that, you know, you could have had a book on Biden years ago. Right. Now, let me so let me ask you this. So I on the media end, because I have had uh, people try to send me oppo. Um, and almost every time I've said, do better, because it's <laughs> it's just rumors. Um, people in 2016, there were people who floated aspects of the Steele dossier to me. And I was thoroughly unimpressed, just thoroughly unimpressed. Um, I would argue to you that that's not oppo. Right. That was if it doesn't have a citation, people were just sending you rumors. Uh, S H I T. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're you're rubbing off on me, David. <laughs> David knows that I would, without blinking, say that word. <laughs> but now he's he's made me better. <laughs> well, uh, I, I would say I would agree with you completely. It was BS. It was total BS. And you're people, but you get flung a lot of rumors. You yeah. get flung a lot of rumors. So. Yeah, so no one is going to run with rumors that's credible. Right. And for you, for your campaign, what you want is the credibility 
of, of someone running it. Now, this all come, came up because of the McKay-Coppins piece right. that was run last week. That's how you and I got into this conversation, if I remember correctly, which is this idea that um, both sides, although McKay's writing about the Republican side, but I assure you it is ubiquitous, the, the standard for what that citation needs to be has fallen so far that, in fact, in your FEC reports, all you have to do is pay a consultant. It'll show up as, you know, Consultants for America. That consultant is then paying some subcontractors, one of whom will be running a business where they have sort of fake news sites throughout the country. But they're not fake. That's the thing. They're, like, real, but they're paid for. Right. They just don't have a disclaimer that, like, they accepted money from the campaign to run this news article about an opponent. Right. But they're real news sites. And so to call it, it's not fake news. They're not deep fakes. It's something else. Yes. It's it's corrosive to journalism and it is corrosive to the credibility of a free media. But it's it's not fake news. Uh, So because of that, that's like changed the game because now I don't need to pitch it to The New York Times to have just a link from the Detroit Wind Press yes. to put that in my ad to run in Michigan. The Detroit Wind Press says Michael Bloomberg is a real SOB. Great. But before you would have needed the New York Times or the Detroit Free Press, and you would have really had to pitch a reporter on that and sell them, and that's what the comms team's job was to do with that book. Um, the second thing is that Trump has changed the game. It was also very important pre-Trump that your candidate not be the one right. oppoing, like debuting the opposition research on the debate stage, for instance. You want them <laughs> to say, according to the New York Times, you cheated on your taxes, not I have proof you cheated on your taxes because I've been looking through you know, your financial records. Right. Trump has blown that up. He has no problem attacking one-on-one his opponent. Remember when they started the disclaimers uh, at the for ads where you had to have, you know, I'm David yes. French and I approve this message. And the, you know, shibboleth within the political community was if it's a positive ad, you do that at the end. David French loves sunshine and puppies. And at the end it says, I'm David French and I approve this ad. <laughs> if it's a negative ad, you start with the disclaimer so that after they then hear all the bad stuff, they're not reminded about you. So I'm David French and I approve this ad. Michael Bloomberg hates puppies. <laughs> and then it goes on from there. Well, Donald Trump doesn't care if you know that it's from him. He wants you to know it's from him. And so it's changed the oppo game. It's interesting. It's interesting to watch. Well, he'll oppo, uh, let's just say from earlier in this pod, a lieutenant colonel in the army. (laughs) He'll oppo a juror. Uh, He'll oppo line prosecutors in his own DOJ. Yeah. 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 No, it's... A gold star mom. Remember the gold star father? He'll oppo a gold star father. Absolutely. Yeah, so that... Uh, makes a difference. But I, you know, the world of opposition research is not as dark arts as people think it is. It's uh, it's a fun job. A lot of lawyers do it as sort of a side thing because it's a very legally job. I think some of the favorite parts for me were looking at voting records where <laughs> uh, no matter which way the opponent voted, I could write an ad on it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Uh, and I would go through hundreds and hundreds of votes and just build these great voting record books, uh, you know, showing what a what a horrible creature you were. <laughs> when, in fact, like, I didn't really care how you voted because either way, you either, you know, voted against puppies or for drug dealers, you know. Well, if you're voting for <laughs> entitlements, you're voting for a deficit. 
if That's you're voting right. to cut entitlements, you're voting against senior. Yeah, you can. It's That's it's right. done all the time. So I have to admit, though, that I think some people will be a little bit disappointed that it's 99% Googling and 1% yeah. like courthouse visits. At, yeah. at no point did you have like meet an informant for a dead drop under a bridge in Budapest, <laughs> even once? No. no, and there's some honor among thieves, right? Minor children are out of play. Right. Uh, you don't go after an opponent's minor children. Um, uh, I was just wholly uninterested in my opponent's personal lives because I'm not sure that they're particularly effective hits anymore. Right. The last one that was really effective was Jack Ryan in 2004, who was running against Barack Obama in Illinois. Uh, it came out publicly that his ex-wife had accused him of forcing her to have sex at sex clubs in Paris. And he dropped out of the race that then uh, Alan Keyes filled in his spot. Barack Obama wins in a landslide. He runs for president. The rest is history. Uh, that Jack Ryan stuff did not come from following him around or photographs. It came from his divorce records, which he had forgotten to seal. Yes, yes. And another little piece of trivia, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that his wife, Jerry Ryan, correct? <laughs> oh, God, yes. I'm so uh, sorry to you listeners that uh, here we go. Might be okay, better yep, known Jerry as Ryan. Seven of Nine. Yes, a, you're right. A, uh, I, I, can you be former Borg really completely? Should we deal with that on a podcast? <laughs> Dear listeners, there's like 3% of this podcast where I don't know the words he's saying. I pretend that I do, but I don't. I don't I don't know what any so of So anyway, is. this is Seven of Nine's hus- ex-husband. Uh, and, and some percentage of yep. listeners will appreciate that very much. Um, and he was considered a rising star in Illinois. He represented the Evanston District uh, and, and North, which you were just at. Uh, talking at Northwestern, yes. and I, of course, graduated from. And little known fun fact: for about two weeks, I worked on the Jack Ryan campaign. The last two weeks. <laughs> oh wow! Wow. Yeah, awkward. <laughs> and but you, know, I was working on it because my professor, uh, as part of our class assignment, we had to write a paper on a campaign that we were working on. And my professor was David Axelrod with special guest professor Rahm Emanuel. And remember, this is pre-Obama. Well, I'm just going to repeat what I said maybe two or three podcasts ago. Sarah Isger knows everybody. And <laughs> and listeners, hopefully in the, in the weeks and months to come, you'll be the beneficiary of that as we get everybody on this podcast. Um, well, let's let's move on into the last topic, uh, a little pop yes. culture. And my my good friend Greg Whiteley uh, got to know him back when years ago when he was following around the Romney campaign and which eventually turned into the Mitt documentary, uh, which is really really good. It was on Netflix. I didn't realize he did both of these. Yes, he also did Last Chance You, which is uh, an award winning. OMG! Yes, this Greg Greg is the man. If you're listening, Greg Greg, you're the man. So anyway, he has a latest documentary that a lot of people are talking about and that you and I have both seen. And it's not typically uh, my subject matter, but... Neither mine, but neither it is, mine. It's Greg's documentary. And as I said, Greg is the man. So what Greg does, I watch. And it's called Cheer. And a ton of people are, are watching it on uh, Netflix and talking about it. And you have thoughts, Sarah. 
So, okay, here's what's fun. So we do this third segment on culture stuff. And while David and I, normally the other two segments come out of conversations that David and I have during the week, for whatever reason, this third culture segment, we actually usually don't talk about ahead of time. And so it is always a fun surprise to each of us (laughs) what the other one actually has to say about it. So I am so curious what you have to say. But so I um, am good friends with two former collegiate cheerleaders. Oh, Full disclosure, I am whatever the opposite of a former collegiate cheerleader is. I'm a former collegiate sleeper. Like, I slept a lot in college and, and ate french fries and read books. Um, but but one of them was a UVA cheerleader, like a major, uh, you know, Division One team. So I was scanning things to watch. I was like, hey, is this any good? They were like, oh, my God, you have to watch this. It's fascinating. The story does not follow a D1 school. It is following a community college yes. that is, um, you know, sort of the most winningest of the college cheerleading champ- national championship, which is held, I believe, in Daytona Beach every year. And so it follows them through the year, uh, last year, of them working up to this Daytona Beach championship where you get two minutes and 15 seconds, I believe, to perform your routine, and that's it for the year. Right. Which, first of all, just seemed like, I don't know, there's something just heartbreaking about that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so, and you follow these uh, teammates and the coach, and there's a lot of different directions that I think Greg could have gone. He he chose an interesting one, which was to really concentrate on the personalities and the character of the people who do this. Right. There was uh, far less about division within the team or the role of race or sexual orientation. You know, a, a number of the male cheerleaders were clearly gay and, and said that in the in the thing, but it didn't become a point of really dissension amongst the team or anything like that. Instead, it was on this extremely hard-driving um, coach who's female yep. in a... I guess very male-dominated profession of head collegiate sports, uh, head collegiate cheerleading coaches are mostly men, uh, and here she is, the best, and she's female. Okay, so here are my uh, just concentrating on her for okay. a second. There are two schools of thought of people who have seen this documentary. One is she's a badass, <laughs> uh, and the other is. Uh, something that Greg clearly highlights a lot but doesn't discuss with his viewers Mm -hmm. are the health and wellness problems that are clear in what's happening. For instance, in one seven-minute segment we watch of a practice, three of the women get concussions. Uh, The men are breaking bones and ankles and whatever. Um, and basically, it's like, take a night off, get back on that pyramid. That's pretty interesting to me. I I mean, you have a daughter who does cheerleading, in fact. And I am curious, when you saw that, whether you would encourage, discourage, or remain neutral if your daughter tells you she wants to be a collegiate cheerleader. Uh, well, A, uh, I don't think that's in the cards because after her first season of cheerleading, she said, I think I'd rather play sports. So... Okay. But when I saw that, I had a very similar feeling that I had when – so my son played football, high school football. I was just going to say there's something very reminiscent about football. And I had that exact same feeling of here these kids are 
laying their bodies on a line for the sport. And, and that is exactly one thing that really stands out here. When you're talking about high-end collegiate-level competitive cheerleading, this is it's a brutal it's a brutal sport. And what Greg really does a good job of is if you look at it, if you zoom out and you're watching from the crowd perspective, say up in the stands, it's incredibly graceful, intricate, high energy. When you zoom in and the camera is 15 feet away, it's you feel like bones are crunching here. Yeah, when they catch the girls, I mean, they just they're catching them the way they're supposed to. Like when it's working properly um, and you their rib cages are just caught with arms every time. And they're talking about how bruised their ribs are. Right. After falling from a, a multi-story building, basically, into the arms of someone, like, that's going to hurt. Yeah. And so my general bias is I am biased in favor. I, I do not have a problem, as a matter of principle, with sports that require physical courage. So long as parents and students are going into this, understanding uh, the risks and are not under a state of uh, deception about the risks. So uh, my wife and I had a long talk about my son playing high school football, and we ultimately left the decision up to him. And of course, the second practice, his jaw is broken in two places, (gasps) dislocated, and he had to have surgery. And I remember taking him to the ER, and he could barely talk. And the first thing that he said when I picked him up was, mom's going to be mad, isn't she? And I was like, <laughs> you have no idea. But I was very proud of him. He came out of the surgery and played that season. Oh, my God. Um, and then had two more full seasons in high school football that he loved and were and and in a lot of ways were really good for him. So. But here's an element of this that I found troubling in the documentary. And I'd be, again, curious on the high school football team if this played out. These students are at a community college, so it's a two-year program. Um, They are not getting paid for this, obviously, because they're student-athletes. There's the aspect of that they love it, no doubt. They love it. But they also adore their coach. Yes. And when she tells them to jump, they literally ask, how high? And when she tells them to get back out there when they have a concussion – they don't blink. Of course they do it. Not because they're afraid of her, because they love her. They love her, her. yep. Uh, and they want to please her, and they don't want to let her down. And their and, teammates. There's a huge bond. And their teammates, yep. for sure. But to put that decision about your long-term health, and, you know, these kids just don't have the frontal lobes that full adults do. They're, they're, and they're not kids. They're adults. But they're 18, 19, 20-year-old adults. Uh, and you're asking him to make a long-term health decision versus a short-term letting my coach down. Not a single one of them is ever going to pick the long-term health decision. And and is it the coach's responsibility to not to keep some distance and not let them get so attached to her? Because some of these are um, kids with very incredibly heartbreaking home lives. Yes. And she has become a surrogate yes. parent. Yes, and, and that's one part of the documentary that was very successfully done was showing – a lot of these kids, I mean, the community of ch- the cheerleading community was a surrogate family for them. And their actual family had been had fallen apart, had sometimes neglected them, had sometimes, uh, you know, one guy, his mom had died. He was a, a son of, you know, he came was raised by a single mom. His mom had died. He was taken in by a family that was involved in cheer. So she is 
she has got a responsibility of not just inspiring these kids to run through a wall for her on che- and cheer, but also she has a responsibility to safeguard that trust and to steward that trust. And I and when they leave in two years, are they going to go out and, and be the best that they can be beyond being a college athlete? And that's the question that I have for these football programs, these cheer programs. Their incentives are aligned to have the best collegiate program that they can have. That is not in line with these kids' interests often. And I think one of the – and I haven't uh, I haven't gotten to the very end of the documentary, so I don't I – don't, Oh, I don't want to ruin no, it No, don't you. do it. <laughs> so I don't know if this is more fully explored, but, you know, the testimony of alumni here is, gets pretty important, I think. Uh, what's, the, what's the legacy feeling? Is this something where people feel like, wow, I, I was used? Or do they feel like these were two of the greatest years of my life and they had a lifelong positive impact? And I think, again, the comparison to football is important. There, there's toxic leadership in – People will run through the wall for bad people, and sometimes it takes years for them to realize that that's what happened and that they were essentially used. But it often it, it happens um, that they do realize that. And and but the power of a good football coach, somebody who will inspire somebody to that level of physical courage and that level of of camaraderie and that level of self sacrifice for a team is incredibly powerful, can be life-changing in all these really, really good ways, but you have to steward that. And it's often not obvious in the moment which which is which. (laughs) Well, I don't want to ruin where this is headed for you for the documentary, except to say that when they do get to Daytona, I mean, just like if you're someone who feels stress in their stomach. Right. Like, don't have a big meal before this. Well, and and can I say one other thing about her that's interesting? So we haven't talked about that much about how much you follow college football. But, okay. I do. I do follow it. Did she not remind you of Nick Saban? (laughs) So I I was actually very much thinking of that comparison during it. And to be honest, I was thinking of Tua during it. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Um, And... And I really thought that after Tua's season-ending injury that Congress and others would finally be moved to make sure that there was compensation for these students during their time at school. Yeah. And I am, uh, of course, as usual, disappointed with Congress doing yes. nothing. Yes. Well, and, and I, <laughs> you and I are on the same page about compensation for athletes. We could have a whole discussion about that. And maybe we should – you know who has been on the forefront on that is Mitt. <laughs> Fair. And uh, I think that the more that there are documentaries like this and others, the better, because I think that when when I've talked to my friends, again, like the D1 um, sports folks, uh, you know, one of them went in and wanted to be pre-med and they were like, well, you can't because you can't have classes during the right. hours of 10 right. a.m. and 4 p.m. It has to fit into this other thing and like, well, that class isn't available, so you can't have that major. Yeah. They're not student athletes. They're athletes who are expected to kind of be students where it fits into the schedule. Yes. Athlete is first, without question. I mean, without question. Yes. So the one last... They have to live in that dorm. They have to take those classes. They have, you know, they have to have tutors, even if they're good students, et cetera. Um, they are living a very different life than you and I led in, or at least me, than, than I led in college. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is... And I, well, I could tell we can talk about this a long time, but... Uh, we're running up against our time. This was really interesting to me. So these 
these guys and these girls adored that coach, adored that coach. But that coach did not exude charisma. She she was very cool, very yeah. professional, uh, obviously kind of kept some distance. And it struck yep. me the extent to which, and this is why I bring up the Nick Saban comparison, success has its own charisma. And so yeah. the fact, I think one of the key bonding experiences is the fact that she would want them on the team. And once somebody of that level, somebody of that unquestioned uh, sense of achievement welcomes you in, I think that creates a bond right from the get-go from the student athlete to the coach just because this person of peer uh, that has no real peer has welcomed you in, has said, you're part of my club. And I've always been interested in how much these Alabama players just seem to be tripping all over themselves to play for Nick Saban and much rather than play for Gus Malzahn at Auburn. And and it just strikes me again and again, success has its own charisma. Once you've won enough, the amount of effort you have to put out to draw these people to you is much lower. Well, and it's a separate conversation for you and I, but... Uh... As a teenager in your early 20s, all you're doing is searching the world for people who think you have potential right. and validate your your potential. Yeah. And um, I remember the first person who thought I had potential and what that felt like. And I remember then when someone, um, I don't know, important might be the wrong word, but like uh, a Nick Saban-esque figure yeah. thought I had potential. And I was like, oh Oh my God! And you're right. I didn't need a hug. <laughs> yeah, that them seeing any potential, like uh, it, this, is a silly example because it's not really about potential. But at one point, you know, uh, Justice Scalia was on campus, and I asked him to sign something, and he let me hold his books while he signed it. And then he sort of walked off, and so I was just holding his books, and I followed him with his books, and I like got to carry his books for the next however long as he went around campus. Yeah. <laughs> he did not realize that I was carrying his books. I was not appointed to do this in any sort of way. <laughs> But like, you know, for that 20 minutes, I was the person who carried Justice Scalia's books. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I was trying to think of a good comparison from my life, and I, I came on this. What if the guild leader for the top Warcraft guild in the world invited me to, like, be on a raid with him? He could, he could be a jerk the entire night. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm in this club. This is the coolest thing ever. So... You can't see Caleb's face right now, our producer, but both of us. That's where we're ending. We're definitely ending on that. I just killed the pod. You killed it. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good place to end with the, the death of the pod. Uh, but we appreciate you listening. And again, we keep appreciating your feedback. David at thedispatch.com. Sarah with an H at thedispatch.com. We have listened. We have absorbed it. And I think we've made a better podcast as a result of it. And again, also... Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Until next week, this has been David and Sarah, and this is the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.